Okay, let's go ahead and get started this morning. For those who don't know me, my name is Jeff Forey, and Ross asked me to teach this particular class on the book of Jonah. So we're going to go ahead and dig into that today. Before we do, I'd like us to begin with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us here today. It's always a delight to be able to get together to study your word with your people. And we pray, Father, that you would guide the course of our discussion today. Help us to understand your word better. Use it, Father, to draw us close to yourself. Use it, Father, to make us more like Jesus. We pray this, Father, uh, for his namesake. Amen. I'm going to pass out a handout. Help me out there, thanks. Pass those around. Yeah, one of those, please. Last week, when Ross introduced our study of the Minor Prophets, he described the manner in which we're going to approach each of these books of the Old Testament. Uh, and it brought to mind this handout that I've given you today that I developed a few years ago to help people understand in a little bit more detail how to go about the study of any passage of Scripture. So I'm going to re reference that uh, as we get started this morning. Whenever you are studying a passage of Scripture, you need to keep in mind uh, that that passage of Scripture was written to a group of people or to an individual whom God had a message to share with. And so that created a particular situation in a, a uh, cultural context that we need to be aware of. And within that particular situation, there was a specific message that the Lord wanted to share with the person or persons, creating what we call a literary context. And so whenever we study a passage of Scripture, that's usually where we begin. Um, we take a look at how the passage is put together, the type of literature it is, the way sentences are constructed, if it's a narrative, the way paragraphs are put together. Um, and so forth. And here are some of the questions that you can ask yourself when you're studying the literary context of a passage of Scripture. But, as I said, that passage of Scripture uh, was created to be used within a particular context at the time. So it is important for us also, as much as we're able, to understand that historical and cultural context. So here are some of the questions that you would ask in order to try to understand that historical and cultural context. And this is the type of information that requires you to dig in a little bit, maybe with commentaries, a study Bible, maybe a, a Bible dictionary, try to get some of that background information to help you understand uh, the passage that you're studying. 
But we also need to keep in mind that God progressively revealed his will to his people over a period of time. Uh, And the messages that he shared earlier with his people were sometimes reflected on and used by uh, later believers. And ultimately, we know that all of God's revelation centers on our Lord Jesus Christ. And so that creates what is sometimes called a redemptive historical context. I'm going to call it a canonical context. The word canon is a, is a word that is used to describe uh, our Bibles because it is a rule for faith and practice. The word canon actually comes from the Greek kanon, meaning standard or rule or norm. So we have in the scriptures this progressive revelation of God's will for his people, ultimately pointing us to Jesus Christ as the culmination of God's plan. And so as we consider the canonical context, we're asking ourselves questions like, how did later biblical writers use what we're now studying in this particular passage? And how are the themes in this passage developed uh, and later focusing on the ministry of Jesus Christ. But then finally, if we're going to honor God with our study of his word, we have to also consider another layer or level of context. The personal context. The context in which we are now living. That context which includes what's going on in our culture, as well as in our own lives. And so we ask ourselves, how do the themes or principles in this passage that I'm studying, which ultimately do point to Jesus Christ, also tell me how I need to be living my life before God to honor Jesus Christ? We're going to keep these levels or layers of context in mind now as we go to the book of Jonah. One of the challenges of studying a book like Jonah is that if you're familiar with the story, it can be easy to miss some of the details in the story that the author put there because they were important for the sake of telling that story. How many here are familiar with the story of Jonah? Okay, most of you are. So if you will indulge me this morning, I'm going to ask you to play along with me. I'm going to ask you to close your Bibles this morning. Put away your Bibles. Occasionally, you'll see some verses from Jonah up on the screen. And then I'm going to ask you, what happens next? We'll see how well, how familiar you are with the story. Okay. Considering first the literary context of the book of Jonah, how, it, how the story in Jonah was crafted. We begin with an introduction to the prophet Jonah, who turns out to be a resistant prophet. He didn't actually want to share the message that God wanted him to share with a group, group of people called the Ninevites. And Jonah, as the story progresses, finds himself in a variety of different situations that I'm going to call scenes as we work through 
the story of Jonah. First, we find Jonah on the sea. Because in order to get away from the Lord, he finds a ship to try to take him in the opposite direction from where he's supposed to be going to Nineveh. Okay, then we find Jonah in a fish. An odd place to be, but turns out to be salvation for him at the time. As the Lord delivers him from the fate of drowning. The fish eventually does deposit him back on the shore. Uh, and he finds himself uh, a little bit more willing now to go to Nineveh. And so he goes to the city of Nineveh. And we read a little bit about his experiences there in the third chapter. And then after he delivers this message, we find out Jonah's still not completely on board with what he just did. Right? And so he's going to go outside the city and hang out and see what the Lord actually does with the Ninevites. And because Jonah is not entirely on board, we find as the book concludes, uh, we have yet another word from the Lord for Jonah to consider. So God uh, both opens and closes the book of Jonah. Okay, let's consider now this first level or layer of context, historical cultural context for the book of Jonah. Uh, we read in Jonah, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship. Okay, let's consider now where these places are. On this map, you can see Nineveh is on the far right on the map. It is a city in the Assyrian Empire that was growing uh, in the days of Jonah. But as I said, Jonah was not willing uh, initially to take God's message to Nineveh. So instead of going east, he decided to go to the coast, to a small harbor town called Joppa. Now Joppa was not under Israelite control at the time. So if you're going to try to find a group of sailors to take you away from Israel, Joppa might be a place to find a, a group of pagan sailors to help you out. And he did. He found some sailors. Uh, and his intention was to travel to Tarshish, which we normally consider a place name. Uh, and we're not exactly sure where it was. We know it was well west of where Jonah was supposed to go. Uh, it's speculated it could have been one of the islands near Greece. It might have been all the way to Spain. Point is, it was a long ways in the opposite direction. Now, I mentioned Nineveh. Nineveh was a very important city in the Assyrian Empire. Uh, it was at Various times in the history of the empire, a capital city. Uh, whether or not it was a capital city in Jonah's day, 
It was very important. Later on, we'll read about the king of Nineveh. An unusual type of phrase. But it does indicate that Nineveh was a very important city to the king. He may have, it may have been a capital at the time, or he may have simply had a residence there, but it was an important city. And was also a very large city. Um, let's go on now and consider a little bit more about who these individuals, the Ninevites, were. As I said, Jonah wasn't all that excited about sharing God's message with the Ninevites, uh, part of the Assyrian Empire. Does anybody here have any background information on why Jonah would not have been all that interested in preaching to the Ninevites? Any, any, uh, any ideas? Yes. They persecuted just about everybody. Uh, the Assyrians uh, were terroristic imperialists. They were brutal uh, as they sought to expand their empire. And when they took over cities of uh, foreign peoples, they would torture the people in that city to make the point, don't mess with us. Okay, so they had a very bad reputation. Uh, and we know from 2 Kings, uh, shortly after uh, Jonah's day, uh, they started to become uh, a very severe enemy of Israel. So, when people thought of the Assyrians, they probably had these types of images in mind. They were very well developed in warcraft. They used iron to create their tools of war. Spears, swords, arrowheads. They used battering rams for the first time in history uh, to break down city walls. They liked siege warfare. They would surround a city, uh, preventing goods from going into the city, or people going out of the city, so that eventually uh, the city was brought to its knees. They'd use their battering rams to get in there and take over and torture people. Okay, so that's the type of people God has a message for. And it's hard for Jonah to imagine how could anything good come out of this? Thinking he knows better than God, he decides he's going to run away from God in the direction opposite of Nineveh. As I said, he finds a group of pagan sailors in Joppa. They have a cargo ship. He's got money. They're willing to take him where he wants to go, or at least in, the same, in that direction. So we find uh, Jonah on the sea as he goes on this ship. But, next that we read, the Lord hurled a great storm on the sea. There was a mighty tempest so that the ship threatened to break apart. That's how severe the storm was that the Lord sent. And it's interesting that the writer of Jonah uses this verb, 
that the Lord hurled the wind to create this storm. It's the type of word that might be used as it is elsewhere in the Old Testament for the throwing of a spear. Later on, the same word will be used to describe what the sailors do with their cargo as they're trying to deal with this this tempest on the sea. Okay, now, what happens next? They start to throw cargo over. Keep going. What happens next? Yeah, they they will first cast lots. But they will also try to find, they will come across Jonah in the hold of the ship. Remember, he went down into the ship. Right? And you remember how they found him? He was asleep. Right? Now, There's a lot of speculation of how could someone sleep if the tempest was that severe that the ship was threatening to break apart. Well, some suggest, well, Jonah was probably in a pretty depressed state and in that kind of state, he doesn't really care a whole lot and if he's tired, it might be easier for him to sleep in that state of mind. Regardless, the sailors do eventually find him, you know, as they're getting the cargo to throw overboard. They find this man sleeping. Oh, yeah, that's right. We brought Jonah on board. They wake him up. They say, how can you be sleeping now? What's going on here? Okay? So, they decide, since this tempest is still going on, um, to throw lots, to cast lots, to see uh, if one of their gods, because remember, these are pagan sailors, so they're probably polytheists, believe in a variety of different gods. They don't know which god might be causing this storm. They assume somebody on board made the god mad, which is causing the storm. So they want to figure out who is on board that is causing the trouble. So they cast lots to determine that. The lot falls to Jonah. Now, what happens next? They didn't want to throw him over. Do you remember why? Of? of yeah, they were afraid that if they killed somebody they would be held accountable for that individual's death. Okay? So they, they weren't initially eager to throw him overboard, uh, but when push comes to shove, they didn't have any other options. And Jonah conf- uh, they asked Jonah, okay, who are you? Where do you come from? What's your business? What's going on? And Jonah does share with them who he is. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? That the God, your God is so mad at you. And it's interesting We're taking a look at literary context here. He says, I 
fear uh, the God who made heaven and earth. And yet, what's he doing? Trying to run away from this God who made heaven and earth. Uh, and yet, the writer of the book of, Hebrew, of uh, Jonah says that the sailors came to fear God in this context. It's a very interesting contrast between a prophet whom God has called to deliver a certain message uh, who says he fears God. Uh, but here it is that the, the, soul, the, the sailors come to actually show that fear of the Lord. Okay, so they do eventually throw him overboard. But God is not done with Jonah yet. The Lord appointed, another very interesting use of uh, a verb here. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Okay, so basically God is going to save Jonah from drowning in the depths of the sea. But he does it in a very unconventional way. Now, in, in this particular artist's uh, rendition of what it, he imagines happens with Jonah, you have Jonah being tossed off the, the ship. And we have this critter here. This is actually a whale shark. It is the largest fish uh, in God's creation. Uh, whale sharks, if this is the kind of fish that God appointed, uh, are huge. The largest one recorded has been like 59 feet long. Uh, typically, they're closer to, to 39 feet uh, in length, around 15 tons. Okay? So they are huge animals. Interestingly enough, they have very tiny teeth and they pose no real threat to humanity. Okay, so if you happen to be swimming, you know, coast of California, Mexico, Africa, they are found in the Pacific, Atlantic, and Indian Oceans. They travel far and wide to find the food that they eat, which is plankton and tiny fish. Um, so it is conceivable that God appointed something like a whale shark to show up in the Mediterranean one day when Jonah happens to take a dip. Okay, now, just let me engage in a little bit of sanctified speculation here. If Jonah had his eyes open as he was descending into the depths, and if God appointed a whale shark uh, to save Jonah from drowning, this is what Jonah might have seen. This is an actual picture that was taken by a marine biologist off the coast of Mexico. He was actually researching uh, whale sharks when he saw this swimmer uh, above a whale shark that had its mouth open, not to eat this swimmer, uh, but rather just to get whatever other small, tiny food the whale shark would typically eat. But this is an awesome picture. It gives you a sense of the size of this animal uh, and especially its mouth in relationship to a human being.
Okay. So, the great fish does swallow Jonah. What happens next in the storyline? More specifically, three days and three nights. Okay? He was in the belly of this marine creature. And what, what do we read about while he's in the fish? He prays. He prays. And then uh, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out in my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Once again, note, note the wording here. From the belly of the fish, he says that God answered him out of the belly of Sheol. It's a weird phrase in, in the Old Testament, but I think it was chosen to reflect where Jonah was. Okay? The belly of Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. Jonah thought he was as good as dead. Okay? When the sailors threw him over in the middle of the sea, in the middle of a storm. Now, if, as you read through this part of Jonah, Jonah chapter 2, there is a well-crafted psalm of thanksgiving. <laughs> I will submit to you that what you read in Jonah chapter 2 was not actually composed in the belly of a fish. I suspect that what happened with Jonah is as the, the fish swallows him, saving him from drowning, he is probably just thinking, God save me! Right? Uh, I, I, the, the closest I've ever come to death was one time when I was driving home from college for Christmas, so it was winter, and I hit a patch of black ice, and my car started to spin. And I remember just really quickly crying out, Father, help me! That's about all I could think of at the time. Okay, so I would imagine that that was really the type of prayer that Jonah immediately prayed. But we also know that eventually <laughs> the fish deposits Jonah on the shore. And now he decides, okay, maybe I better go to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh, about, it was over 500 miles from the Mediterranean coast. And without planes, trains, and automobiles at his disposal, Jonah had plenty of time to think about his experience and maybe craft the psalm that eventually finds its way in the book of Jonah, chapter 2. Okay. So, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, 
three days journey, probably three days journey in breadth if you include it, suburbs. Jonah began to go out into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Okay. That was the message. The only message that God wanted Jonah to share with the Ninevites. This is one of the things that makes the book of Jonah as a minor prophet different from the other minor prophets that we'll study. Because as Ross shared with us last week, the other minor prophets are simply a, usually a series of messages that God gave the prophet to deliver to the people. And they were compiled in what we now have in our Bibles as the minor prophet books. But the book of Jonah is different in that it actually relays a historical narrative. Now, the message that Jonah had for Nineveh was very brief. Forty days. Nineveh will be overthrown. What happens next? Pardon? Yeah, the people repent. And it goes even further. The text tells us, beyond the general populace that lives in Nineveh, who else is specified? The king. The king of Nineveh uh, also takes Jonah's message very seriously. Okay, and he orders um, everybody to don sackcloth. Okay, the typical way of showing mourning and regret. So the whole city, or at least the majority of this city, we can say, uh, has this change of attitude toward God after Jonah's message is delivered. Okay. What happens next? Okay, so, yeah. God relents from bringing the disaster on Nineveh. Okay. Jonah. Whoops. Jonah goes outside the city of Nineveh. He sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself, a little type of shelter, using whatever materials he might find there. And he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. There's that verb. Where did we see that verb before? With the fish. God appointed the fish. Now God's appointing a plant. Remember, He is the Creator, the God of heaven and earth. He's in control of this narrative. right? Okay, so God appointed a plant. Uh, and Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, because the plant provided him shade. Here are some possible uh, candidates for the type of plant uh, that, that God may have caused to grow up there near Jonah to provide, with him, uh, provide shade for him. You can see that these possibilities have very large leaves uh, to provide shade for him. Okay, what happens next? 
Pardon? Why? Yeah. God appoints a worm, probably a caterpillar, okay, um, to destroy the plant. Both of the plants that I showed you as possible candidates uh, are very sensitive to damage. So presumably it wouldn't have taken a whole lot uh, for the plants to die. But God appointed, there's that verb again, God appointed a worm. So, the worm does kill the plant, the plant dies, it can no longer provide shade. God does something else. God appoints a scorching east wind. Hot, dry, suffocating kind of wind. Uh, that now assaults Jonah. Literally, it assaults Jonah. Okay? He's there without shade in a desert area with this hot, scorching wind blowing over him. And Jonah's response is, it would be better for me to die. But what happens next? Remember? Jonah chapter 4. Now as we close out the book. Pardon? You remember how he does that? Yeah. Okay. Yes, indeed. And Jonah is sitting outside the city overseeing the city because he wants to see what God's going to do. Obviously, when the Ninevites repent and God relents from the, the judgment, Jonah is not that excited. In fact, Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, we read, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. He was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Where would Jonah get that from? The first time we read that type of description of God is in Exodus. Okay? This is how God actually describes himself to Moses. So this is God's reputation among the Israelites. Because this is what he's revealed himself to be. Jonah knows that. And he knew that when God initially called him to go to Nineveh with a message. He knew God might be up to something like this. And it displeased him then. He had a slight change of heart, you know, while he was traveling in a fish. Uh, but now he's back there again. He's back there again. And he says, God, I don't like this. I don't like this one bit. Jonah 4, verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And do you remember what God says to Jonah then? 
is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to second guess my sovereign decision? That's essentially what God is saying to Jonah. And that's how the book ends, basically, with God's question to Jonah. Is it right for you to be angry? Should I allow these people, 120,000 people, die? And their cattle also? That's the question that the book of Jonah ends with. It is a question left ringing in the ears of the prophet as he's wrestling with God outside the city of Nineveh. And I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that's also the question, the type of question that God poses to us as we now consider the broader canonical context and the personal context in our study of the book of Jonah. Remember, the canonical context is how the um, themes of the passages that we're studying, in this case, the book of Jonah, how those themes now are developed uh, later in redemptive history, and especially as they point us to the ministry of Christ. And Jesus himself refers to what happened to Jonah. In Matthew chapter 12, we read, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And Jesus continues, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of, jo of Nineveh, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, one greater than Jonah is here. Now, you think about this interaction between Jesus and the scribes and Pharisees. They're asking for a sign. Jesus is displeased with that request. Do you have any sense for why that would be the case? That's right. He already has a history of doing signs of healing. Okay? They know what he's capable of doing. And those signs of healing authenticated his ministry as the Son of God. The Messiah of Israel. Um, so he discerns in their request really an evil intent. Okay? And so he said, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And that sign, of course, Jesus tells them, has to do with that experience of Jonah spending three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. Okay? Otherwise, as good as dead, God saved Jonah for his purposes, right? Jesus says, that's the sign you're going to get next. 
and he refers to his own death and eventual resurrection. Whoops, keep going backwards there. Now, in the light of all that we've been talking about uh, this morning from the book of Jonah, let's consider, finally, the personal context. That is our context. The context of, of your life. How do, what, how do the, the, the things that we learn in the book of Jonah relate to how you now think about yourself as a child of God and what you might need to be doing in your life uh, to honor Him. When you have a historical narrative like we do with Jonah, it is likely that you're going to find God's message as you look at the characters in that narrative, what they do, what they say, uh, what happens to them. And in the book of Jonah, our cast of characters includes God, Jonah, sailors, Ninevites. And as that narrative unfolds, who turns out to be the primary character that draws our attention again and again and again? It's God. Because God is controlling the narrative from beginning to end. God's word begins the book of Jonah and it ends the book of Jonah. God is the primary character. So, what do you learn about God in the book of Jonah? He calls people for his purposes. What else? Absolutely. Sovereign and complete control. Of what happens. What else? Yes, right. Don't mess with God. <laughs> Absolutely. 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 Mm-hmm. Indeed. He will get your attention. That's right. And we, we see that in the Psalms. We see that in Job. Um, Elijah, you know, had some moments with God, too. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. 
That's right. That's right. Ultimately, what God calls us to is to submit to his plan. We're running out of time here, so let me um, go to uh, some other passages uh, that, rem- are rem- that remind us of the themes that we find in the book of Jonah, beginning here with Romans chapter 5. Verses 8 through 11. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We go to the Gospel of Luke. There Jesus is reported as saying, but love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. You know, as you think about how the book of Jonah relates to you, You might want to ask yourself, am I running from God? Am I refusing uh, to do something that I'm sure God is calling me to do? Is there perhaps somebody you need to talk to? God has been tugging on your heart maybe to talk to a neighbor, a family member who needs to know the Lord. Or perhaps maybe there's a brother or sister in Christ with whom you have conflict and for the sake of unity with the body of Christ God calls you to address that conflict we also learn from the book of Jonah that our resistance to God can also affect the people around us and you might ask yourself if I am resisting what God wants me to do how is it affecting the people around me How is my resistance creating hardship for them? See, these are ways in which God chooses at times to get our attention, as he did Jonah. But ultimately, for the sake of fulfilling his perfect plan, inviting us to be a part of it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the lessons we received from our study of Jonah, a powerful reminder of who you are as a great and merciful God who chooses to show his love even to those who are his enemies. This morning, Father, as we reflect on that, we confess that that was once us. And so how grateful we are 
that we have the confidence that in you sending your son to die for our sins, we can be a part of your family. And Father, we pray that you would help us to love those who might be against us in some way, who oppose us, who persecute us. Give us that strength of character, that motivation to want to reflect your mercy in our lives for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you very much.